Hi, I'm Kara O'Keefe. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, now part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, we're sitting down with writers across the genre spectrum, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more information. So the first week of May is Children's Book Week. So Kara, I want to open up with a question since we both have young kids. Uh, What draws you to a kid's book? Oh, man. Um, this is this is such an interesting question. Right, right now, I have a, a seven-year-old and a one-year-old, so I'm getting to experience like a couple of different ranges of kids' books. For 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 younger kids, I love anything with repetition and any kind of like rhythm. I think that's one of the most interesting things, particularly with very young kids, because they pick up on it so quickly. They understand when there's a particular rhythm and when that rhythm gets gets changed or broken or interrupted somehow. And they're so interested and amused by that. And it's it's one of the first things I noticed my my youngest daughter getting um getting engaged with and responding to in um in the books that I read with her. And with old with older kids, it's really interesting to look at like some of the things my daughter's really drawn to right now and and some of the things that I was reading at the same age. Like I loved at her age things like the Babysitter's Club book. And and my daughter is um is right now very interested in graphic novels, which is something that I don't really remember reading at all when I was that age. But 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 it but it has been really fun to kind of like watch watch their development and and what they get interested in. I guess the the follow-up question is how many of your youngest daughter's books do you have memorized because of those rhymes? <laughs> um, you know, that's that's one of those things. It it really I'm really drawn to the rhymes. I'm drawn to silliness. I mean, I'm a professional mooer and oinker and you know, a <laughs> quacker. Like I am just so good at making those animal sounds now. And those books are really great. But what I like is something that surprises me. It's kind of the sense of like when you watch a a treasured, maybe this is with the babysitters club, like you watch a treasured kids movie that you grew up with and you watch it again. And then the, there's the whole new level of meaning. Um, there's something for the kids who enjoy and the parents who enjoy. And there are so many of those books that actually make me laugh. I mean, one of them is uh, this book called Tickle Monster by Josie Bizet. And yep. it's so funny because I, you know, it's just, they use a lot of crazy words in the book. And I love crazy words. And then there are all these cliffhangers where you can guess what the next rhyme is going to be. And for kids, the guesses are very different than adults who just, um, you know, read it and see, but (laughs) there are some implications of what it could be. (laughs) So I just like to have fun with the books. You know, one of, one of the books that my, my loved consistently, consistently since she was like even maybe three years old up until now is um, BJ Novak's The Book with No Pictures. Have you read this before? No. Oh, you're going you're, you're going to love it when your son is old enough for it. It's this very very goofy book, um, which, which um, unlike most children's books, has no pictures. Um, but it plays with the idea of the book getting the person reading it to say ridiculous things, and and kids are so amused by it. It's it's one of the most fun books. This is what I think is so interesting: is that kids' books allow the kids to be silly and learn, but it's also a great opportunity for us to kind of like, you know, slough off our, our zoom calls and just get just silly in a way that we haven't in years. And I am a fan of the sillier, the better. Like if you can make a strange word rhyme, I am in your camp. But I, I, I always joke with my husband that the word of choice for blurbs are, is rollicking 
with kids books. Look <laughs> at the back of your kids books. Half of them will say it's rollicking, um, but it's the books that are actually rollicking that I'm really drawn to. <laughs> I, I love that. And I, I don't think I've ever paid very much attention to kids' book blurbs, um, but maybe I'm, that's something I'm going to have to start looking at now. There, it's it's a lesson. It's a lesson in, in writing style and what you're what you're drawn to. But I'm I'm really excited today as part of Children's Book Weeks. We are talking with two incredible children's book authors, Nadine Popper and Megan Wagner Lloyd, who have both written a, a wide variety of books, both for for kids and for that middle grade age as well. Yeah, we're really excited to talk with them. Nadine Popper is a former elementary classroom teacher and current elementary librarian in Reading, Pennsylvania. She's the author of several children's books, including Randall and Randall, a story about embracing each other's peculiarities, and Porcupet and Moppet, a clever lesson about situational awareness. Megan Wagner Lloyd is the author of the kids' graphic novel Allergic, co-created with illustrator Michelle Nee Nutter. She's also the author of the picture books, Finding Wild and Fort Building Time, Building Books and Paper Mice. Nadine and Megan, welcome and thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. So in honor of Children's Book Week, we wanted to start off just by asking you, what's your favorite classic children's book? Megan? Oh, it's always so hard to pick a favorite. One of my go-to favorites that I'll say though is Charlotte's Web. I've always loved that one and I still love it. And Nadine? Actually, I was thinking of Charlotte's Web as well. <laughs> so it's, it's not like I can't think of my own, but that is, that's definitely mine also. The meeting of the minds. I love it. <laughs> I always think it's interesting to, to think about classic kids books and, and, and what's being published now. When, when you're writing, how do you approach finding, you know, what's new in kids books and, and also kind of competing with, uh, with more established classics? As a librarian, I have access to a ton of resources. So when I'm looking to add books to my school library collection, um, I my go-tos are, I use Follette Tidal Wave, which um, is a huge library vendor, jobber, and um, they're excellent at pushing out the latest and greatest titles. But then I also, as a, a librarian, I'm able to be in touch with all the publishers. So I'm getting inundated daily with emails from, you know, the big houses to the smaller ones. And, um, and then I also pay attention to certain other blogs and podcasts too. So um, it just seems like I'm constantly, constantly thinking about what's what's coming up and what's next and what my students are going to love. Yeah, I would say for me as a writer, it's really hard to predict, I think, what is going to be like a hit with the current generation of kids. Um, I try not to overthink that too much because there are so many classic kids books. There's so much great stuff being published all the time that you really don't always know where your work will fall in that. Some ideas I've had that I thought, oh, this will definitely get published, don't get picked up. Other ones that I thought, you know, weren't that great for the market will get published. And um, so I mostly try to just be writing from um, what I think I can offer or what I think I can write in a true way. And then, but I do try to stay very aware of 
like what is currently being published as well, just to keep that in mind. But when I'm writing, I'm really in the zone of um, what stories can I tell. That's always interesting. You know, we we hear this on on all sides of the kind of publishing spectrum is if you write for the current trends, you're going to be years behind. So just writing for what interests you. In in this vein, in, in the bios that Kara read, both of your works are talking about some really important topics. So in Porky Pet and, and Moppet, Nadine, you're writing about situational awareness. And then in Allergic, Megan, obviously you're writing about allergies. So how do you approach writing about what could be pretty abstract or scientific topics for young audiences? For me, then I want to make sure it's very grounded in a story because personally, I'm not interested in writing nonfiction or even like memoir very much. I really love fiction. And so um, like an allergic, I always tried to prioritize and my editor was focused on this as well that we only include the nonfiction information like insofar as it naturally felt like it could come up in the story and that the reader can just become very attached to that character and everything they're going through. And that's the priority of the storytelling. Yeah, and for me, um, I feel like I have, a, I have a little bit of an advantage. Um, being an elementary librarian, I'm always in front of kids when I'm sharing books. And when it comes to nonfiction, I tend to kind of get a feeling for what makes the kids want more. And it seems like the, the nonfiction books that have a little bit of that fiction touch to it, the talking animals or the silly situations, and then being able to weave the nonfiction into it without them even knowing that they're learning, um, you know, about you know, whatever it is that that you want them to know about. When I did that with with Porky Pet, uh, I just had these two animals, and uh, and I figured, okay, so how can I keep the children engaged? And so I had them talk, and I had the the one character just you know read a book about the other character. And uh, so it, they were getting factual information at the same time, just hearing a really good story. That's great. You have to kind of like sneak it in with <laughs> in the kids lit sometimes. We talked a little bit about this a minute ago, but um, I'm, I'm curious about whether you guys notice different trends in in kids literature you know even though you don't necessarily know what it's, things are going to look like a couple of years down the road when you're writing do do you see children's taste in literature changing over time and, and Nadine maybe that's something you notice as a librarian as well yes I have seen that um first as a classroom teacher and then now as a librarian so it, it, that spans a 25-year career for me and what I'm noticing more and more is for children, I, when I say I'm an elementary librarian, I'm kindergarten to fourth grade. So the fourth graders are just at that middle grade, that middle grade stage. So they're trying to bridge themselves from picture books and early readers to middle grade. And what I'm seeing more and more is that kids are choosing their books based on what's inside visually. So the more illustrated, the better. 
um, the less text, the better, even the way the text is positioned on the page. So they don't just shock the cover. Like I remember when I was younger, I would just shock the cover and shock the title uh, and read the blurb on the back. Um, from what I'm seeing is kids will shop the inside now. And if they feel um, maybe slightly threatened by the amount of text on a page, that book's gonna go back on the shelf. Um, not all children, but I think most, from what I'm seeing, most children will, they're looking for what feels comfortable for them visually. I would say one of the biggest you know, changes I've witnessed in my lifetime is the rise of graphic novels in kids' books. They were not something that I um, knew about as a kid. I don't know if there were like some kids' ones when I was little, but I wasn't aware of them. They weren't, I didn't find them at the library. I would read like Calvin and Hobbes comics, but um, there weren't graphic novels as there are today. And just the rise of those and how incredibly popular they are with kids. And it's just really fun, like Nadine was saying, with them um, being able to open it up and see the illustrations inside too. And I feel like it just provides um, not a replacement for novels, but just like another pathway of reading. Um, so they don't have to just leave illustration behind when they kind of age out of picture books. Um, so I think it's been a great development. I, I completely ag agree with Megan because I think a lot of kids are made readers because of graphic novels. And if you think about it, though, it actually, uh, to read a graphic novel, there's a lot more going on in the brain than there is with just, you know, straight text. And you, it's almost like you have two literacies going on. You have the text literacy so the child has to understand you know the comprehension of the words but at the same time their eyes are so busy going from panel to panel to panel to panel and keeping up with facial expressions and speech bubbles in addition to little narration and uh, I just think it takes even a little bit more work on the, the child's part to read a graphic novel and it's, it's just wonderful to see that they grip onto that. Well, this raises a really interesting question because, you know, as you both have said, the illustrations are so important for not, of course, for graphic novels, but for all children's book is, books as well. I mean, the number of children's books I've read over the last 15 months with my son is just outrageous. Um, so, you know, Nadine, you've said in the past that the publisher chose your illustrators for you. So I, I wonder, and, you know, Megan, I want to hear about your experience next, but Nadine, since the illustrations are so key to the book's character and its appeal, especially if kids are reading in the middle, how did this relationship work for you? I, I, I had a positive experience and um, I didn't have a whole lot of, not a whole lot of conversation with the illustrator. I got to see the illustrations and probably Megan experiences the same thing, got to see the illustrations along the way. But a couple of decisions that I thought were wise was the, they tried to put, the publisher tried to put a little bit of that graphic novel look to some of the pages, which I was, was pleased about with the speech bubbles. And then there's a couple of pages that there's panels 
uh, or spreads that have panels. And um, so I was really, really pleased with those decisions that she made as the, the illustrator, um, both books and um, the, the publisher. I thought that was very wise. Megan, what was your what was your experience like with illustrators? Did you find them on your own or did the publishers find them for you like with Nadine? So for my picture books, then the publishers chose the illustrators for all of them. Um, like they bought the text first and then found the illustrators. Um, but it was a great experience. I love what those illustrators did. We didn't like work closely together. It's mainly like through our editor, but they did a great job. And then for the graphic novel, then my agent was like, let's try something different. Let's try finding an illustrator um, beforehand. Cause I'd written with graphic novels, you don't have to like write the whole book before trying to sell it. You can write like the first part of it. Um, so I'd written part of it and then my agent was like, let's see if an artist wants to team up and you can like put together a submission package together. And so then she actually ended up meeting the illustrator, Michelle Meenutter, at a conference and was like, hey, I have this, these chapters. Are you interested? And Michelle was kind of like, I don't know. That's a big project. She'd like just finished art school. And then she read them on the plane home and she was like, I'm going to do it. So so then we teamed up at that point and um, we, it's been different than the picture books. Like we definitely work together a lot more and have more back and forth. Um, and it's been really fun to do it that way. We really like working together. We're making another book together now. I, I imagine that it has to be at least at first or the first time you're going through this, a strange sense of letting go of control, um, you know, over your project. It's one thing in you know the novel world it's okay you might not have any say in the cover of your book but everything else inside the jacket you know within reason is are is you so but here that you know you're talking you've both talked about how integral these images are so i could see myself getting pretty nervous at the outset of being like here are my words do your thing yeah i just i have had good experiences like um people say that especially you know a lot of people don't know that the publisher usually chooses the illustrator and they're like oh are you nervous um but I think you know lots of times editors and art directors have really good taste <laughs> so they find really good illustrators and then with the graphic novel I knew I liked her art you know before we sold it so I had a lot of confidence with that but I can definitely see how you might have a bad experience but so far you know, crossing my fingers, it's gone well. I had a, a unique experience. I was given a list of illustrators that the publisher had had ahead of time. And they told me, go ahead and look at all their portfolio online work and then rank one to whatever. And in the meantime, the publishing company, they also ranked from one to whatever. And then if we had any commonalities, then we would start from there and go down to see who was available for the project. So um, that, I don't know if that's unique at all, but maybe that's just a little benefit of, from working with a smaller independent press versus a bigger a house. So I, I thought that was really interesting too. So I didn't get a final say, but I did get to at least say, hey, I, I can picture this illustrator's 
style for these characters. So that was interesting. This opens up a whole new side of publishing for me. <laughs> I, I wanted to, to shift gears really quick and ask you both, um, and I think this is something Susie and I talk about a lot, like how how you balance parenting and writing and how being a parent influences your writing. I know a couple of, I know a couple of your kids are a little bit older now, but particularly because you write children's books, um, I wonder if your experiences as parents influence your work in any way. Well, I definitely think my experiences as a parent with my kids have influenced my work um, with writing a graphic novel. Like I got, they got interested in graphic novels. I got interested in graphic novels. I was reading right along with them. But yeah, as far as like parenting or like work-life balance, I'm always like, I don't know. <laughs> it's so uh, unique for each situation. I, I would say that I, since I've been like a work at home parent, then I have always tried to set goals that are really flexible, not like hourly um, writing goals, but like, um, because then it'll be really frustrating if, you know, I don't get that full amount of time in, but more like goals like finish this chapter or get this many words or things like that, because then I can try to speed up my progress if I'm having less time. Just try to set markers that can't be um, changed by whatever, you know, you have to go pick up someone sick from school. Uh, there's always going to be something, you know, so I try to not be like, have a structure that will be destroyed and discourage me if those, <laughs> everything doesn't go to plan because it never will. <laughs> So I always try to focus on what I can actually control and how I could shift things if things change as they always do. Um, but I've been pretty lucky because I was able to be, I've been able to be like a stay at home parent and do my writing from home. So I don't know how you balance it when you also have like an outside job and are writing and are parenting. And that's a whole nother um, thing to balance. It's a whole nother thing this past year for everybody too as well. <laughs> Nadine, what about you? Well, like you said, my, my boys are older now, but when I started to write, um, it was a good eight years ago. So they were in their, you know, pre-teen. But what really worked for all of us as a family was just to set a little bit of boundary, say, you know, this is mom's writing time. Uh, we're not going to bother mom from this time to this time. If you're able to, have that conversation with the people in your home and um you know if if you were supposed to cook dinner one night maybe somebody else can can cook dinner or you know something like that so i think communication is key if you if you have those people in your home with you and then um like megan i i haven't really given myself a whole structure or a schedule to write because to me, that's just non-existent. <laughs> so, and if I tried and fail, which I would miserably, um, I don't know if I would ever write again. So I hear some people say, you know, they get up at 4 a.m. and start to write before the day is over. Me, that is never going to work. And some people like to write, you know, after the children go to bed, and by then, I, I know personally, I would be wiped out. But 
So I think everybody's situation is unique. You just need to find what works for you. And as far as the work balance, um, you know, I work full time. So I have to still put that as a priority because my librarian job is our bread and butter. If that's what pays, you know, a lot of the bills, the writing doesn't pay the bills. So I have to keep that first, but I still have to find that time. So when do I write? Sometimes I'll wake up, you know, in the, in the early morning and scribble, you know, a couple of sentences down. There's a, a wonderful opportunity once a month, my local chapter of SCBWI has uh, once a month, it's from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And we all meet virtually and we just have a prompt, we write, and then we stop after a couple minutes, chit chat, go back to silent writing. So there's all kinds of ways to get it done. <laughs> yeah. And SCBWI is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, right? Yes. Well, uh, that's that, that's all really really great advice for um, for for parent writers or people who are balancing other jobs. And that was actually one of the last questions I wanted to ask both of you was, what advice you you offer to people who are interested in getting a start in writing children's books? I would say um, expect for it to take like between five and ten years for you to really get it going to where you want it to be. Uh, I think that's pretty typical. It took me from when I like wrote my first novel and I was like, I want to be published. It took me then like 12 years before my first picture book came out. And I don't think that's unusual. So I think you want to have a really long-term mindset, especially because most people aren't just going to be like doing that full time. Either they're like um, home with kids or they're working or they're going to school and, you know, doing that on the side. So just have a long-term mindset and um set like goals but look at like the big picture so you know where do i want to be in a year what can i get done you know in six months where do i want to be in five years um and just try to slowly chip away towards those goals and have fun with it because there's always a new challenge even once you're published there's um each project is a new challenge there's always it's always going to be a journey. And so um, just enjoy creating things along the way. I would say my biggest advice is to read the genre you want to write for. If you want to write picture books, you have to immerse yourself or just to write for children in general. You've got to flood yourselves with, with that genre picture books constantly, middle grade. I'm um, A lot of times my friends will come up to me and say, hey, I need a new book. What do you recommend? Well, the only thing I can recommend is anything from fifth grade on lower. <laughs> so they're hoping like I would be able to recommend like the newest New York Times adult thriller. I'm like, I, I can't help you there. <laughs> so, um, but that, that's, that's my biggest advice. You just have to read it read it, read it, and understand the structure. You got to learn the craft and um, just surround yourself with like-minded people, uh, other writers. And uh, that's really what helped me a lot too. I think that's great advice. Read what you want to, what you want to write. 
Um, and I, that's probably advice that applies across really any number of genres. It's something I tell my students all the time. Well, Nadine and Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking with both of you. Thank you. We, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. This was really fun. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.